company had 10 box licenses, we knew it would have 100 plus of Dropbox users. Right, it was 10X. I mean, we, we knew that people were using Dropbox everywhere. Um, and we knew that people were using Box. We knew usability for the user was probably in Dropbox's favor. And most people liked that. But organizationally, there were positive trends to the things that we were doing and the way we were building in Box. Right? But basically, we became the enterprise Dropbox. Right. And sometimes companies confuse us. The naming thing was really unfortunate. And so often people would be like, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to you guys. And they didn't know they were talking to Box versus Dropbox or vice versa, right? Both of us had guerrilla tactics. And I think Dropbox didn't have as defined a direction in Enterprise. And Drew didn't know that he wanted to be in the Enterprise as much as Aaron and Box did. So Box really invested heavily in security and compliance and making sure the company knew what their content was all about. Box was first to market with an administration console. And that became like a really important differentiator for us. We eventually started marketing it um, as a solution to your Dropbox problem. And so my, my Dropbox uh, board member brought that up just recently with me. He said, hey man, I kind of stumped when you guys brought that up and you created this Dropbox problem because we don't look at ourselves as a problem. We obviously were marketing towards that to say, hey, you don't know what's going on in those 100 users of Dropbox, what content they're trading, who they're trading with, it might be just grandma's picture. We don't know. And you want to make sure that they're doing real business you know, stuff. So you need an admin console, you need security, you need certification. It was, it was kind of a cool experience and a lot of fun to be part of that growth trajectory. Today we have Darcy. Uh, Darcy is the SVP of sales at Product Board. Uh, but there's a lot of life that precedes uh, Product Board in, in Darcy's sure life. Sure is, sure is. Uh, so Darcy started back in 89. Uh, selling uh, teenagers, uh, uh, selling experiences went on from there uh, to selling copier and fax machines amongst other hardware. And then found himself in you know, an 18, 19 year old uh, long career at Oracle, selling uh, a lot of mainframe and uh, databases, and then Box, uh, Carta, and now at Product Board. Before I butcher your introduction any further, Darcy, maybe uh, if you could introduce yourself to our audience, uh, that'd be amazing. Sure. And thanks for having me. Of course. Um, obviously excited to uh, to help uh, with your with your podcast here, but um, yeah, I think you hit on the, you had it on the head. I got into uh, I got into sales just by necessity, right? I needed a job, I needed some way to make some money. And um, after sort of working for a company that was based out of the Caribbean during the summers, uh, sort of after college, I started doing trips to go see families to say, hey, why their their family might want to go send their kids down to the Caribbean to learn how to sail together with a bunch of other kids and sort of get along with people on a big boat. And that became sort of um, my impetus to get into like sales, where I'd sit down with these families and say, hey, why did it make sense to spend three grand for you to send your kid to the Caribbean for two weeks? It was actually going to be a rewarding experience. So that was, a, that was kind of a fun way to start my sales career. I moved to the Bay Area shortly after that, right, to get, to get a real job. So this but, was back in New York? Yeah, this is when I was still living on the East Coast. Okay. Yeah. Growing up in New York and Western New York. And what is the toughest part about selling a $3,000 uh, yachting experience to a teenager and their parents. <laughs> what, what do you learn about selling enterprise sales it's and probably, selling bigger deals? It's, what's so funny is it's probably the same thing as that you learn from any sales job that you have. Who is the right target customer? Right? So if I go to one of you guys and you don't have any kids, I'm probably talking to the wrong people. But if I go to somebody who goes to a, wealth, a wealthy school, a private school in the Northeast, and they have access to their parents and their parents have a nice house and Greenwich or something like that, and they want me to come in and pitch it, then I think I know I have a good target, right? So we'd go to these school fairs, 
and we talk about these these uh, programs, these summer programs, right? You could go to Outward Bound, you could go to um, Silk Ribby, and you could go to these different camps, and the kids would kind of be like, wow, I could go live on a sailboat with 10 other kids? That'd be really fun. And so these kids would tell their parents, hey, let's have these folks come to our house. And so we went to the, you know, I'd go to their house and I'd sit down with these families and talk about uh, why it made sense and how much character it would build, how much they'd learn outside of just the experience of being on a boat with 10 teenagers. So it's marketing to the kids to create for and then selling to the parents. So I did customer for a persona. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and the ICP, the, the target customer profile, right? Who's the ICP there? It's, it's basically, um, it's, it's a family that can afford to send their kid away for a week mm-hmm. for three grand you know, during the summer mm-hmm. in, in the late in the late 80s. That's amazing. So early lessons in identifying the ICP. That's a valuable <laughs> lesson from across all, across all sales, right? It's yeah. like understanding who is the ideal customer profile and please do not spend time with someone who do, does not fit the profile. Right. And then value selling as well. Uh, exactly. Telling parents what, what a kid would get out of it, how it would help their career 20 years down the line. Uh, that's amazing. But taking a step back, Darcy, uh, uh, wanted to touch upon how you found yourself into sales as a career. Uh, looking back, and looking back at myself, the reason I wanted to found a company uh, can be found uh, looking back at a lot of my childhood. Uh, my dad wanted to start up but never had the financial means to do it. Uh, my uncle failed at starting up and there was an innate desire for me to actually sort of meet that um, uh, uh, that gap right? uh, that they weren't able to fill. Uh, looking back at your childhood, are there similar moments uh, you can point to it actually inspired you to get into this career and then have an illustrious uh, 20, 25 year career in sales. Yeah, I wish it was just 20 years. <laughs> More than that. But yeah, I think I think it was it was my first job, um, which was a horrible, horrible job working on a construction yard, like in a, in a lumber yard. And the, the people didn't like me. I was a kid. They made me like their whipping boy, right? So I didn't want to do that kind of work. I didn't want to work in a lumber yard where I would have to go into the attic and throw down pieces of wood or sort through scraps of insulation and get it embedded in my fingers and my, and my arms. And so basically, by necessity, I sort of tried other things. And I got into uh, to helping New York public interest research groups go door to door and talk about why it made sense for them to invest in these things and in the environment. And that was sort of natural for me. It came to me as a challenge. Mm-hmm. It was also pretty lucrative because it depended on the work you did was not that you know you you weren't limited your pay was not limited by the work you did from nine to five it was basically the work you did to find the right customer or consumer that would buy your service and that was always intriguing to me so it kind of became like a natural thing coming out of liberal arts liberal arts education it became a natural thing for me to make that made sense where it was like hey i can i can do something like sales control my destiny you know, live where I want, hopefully make enough money to support my family and those things. Gotcha. And fast forward to today, this 25, 30 years later, with the SPP of Sales and Product Board, what are your priorities today and uh, what are you focused on right now? Yeah, so uh, obviously today's economy is dictating different things than it was half a year ago, right, with what's going on in the world in general. Um, but the priorities are the same. Like, let's do the best we can to grow the top line and fundamentally keep these customers and keep them excited and happy. Let's get as many people to the number as we can to make sure that the team can be successful mm-hmm. and product board can continue to grow, mm-hmm. right? And so that's been a big focus of mine. I, I, I'd like to think that I have sort of tunnel vision around those things. And sometimes that tunnel vision limits me, but sometimes it, it helps me and it becomes tailwind, right? Where it's like, at least the guy knows what he's doing and he can help get the team to the number 
on a quarterly or annual basis. Interestingly, you speak about recessions and just tough economic times. Uh, now, you've, there's a few of us who are see, seeing a recession first time for the first time in our professional careers. Uh, back in 08, we were still part of sort of the schooling system, but you've seen a few recessions over. Um, and going through the first one myself, I see that there's two ways you can go about certain things. Like there can be knee-jerk reactions uh, to how you handle a, re uh, a recession, and sometimes they're required versus sometimes they're not. Um, so how would you sort of advise early stage teams, founders, sales leaders in where they need to act immediately versus what they should sort of think through and act over a period of time as they handle uh, economic uncertainty? Yeah, I think there's, this is, there's such a, a big way to handle this based on what, what stage the company is in. Where's the product? What's the team doing? How well is that group doing? So, they, I mean, parts of the business within bigger companies can still be doing well. Parts of the business can be really struggling. And so you have to really evaluate where you are as a business. But obviously, having hindsight of going through the dot-com bubble burst, going through 2008 and seeing how that impacted the business, going through like the first round of layoffs I ever saw in my career in the days of you know, 2001 at Oracle, that was, that's all kind of stuff that's helped kind of build muscle around it, you know, to understand like what's going on in the business and then react to it properly. It's funny how you learn these lessons over and over again, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think you have to evaluate the business and the business you're in based on the size, what you're seeing is the top, the top indicators, what's happening at the top of the funnel, what's happening with conversion against you know, what you're working on as a sales team, what's happening in the different segments of the business. Is it, is it different from what's happening in enterprise than it is in commercial? And how do you react to those things so that you can adjust and course correct? Because different businesses are being impacted differently by the economy right now. Obviously companies that have deep pockets, that have real mission critical goals, are sticking to those goals, right? Are trying to make sure that they make the changes in their business over time so that they can have the impact that they want to as large companies. Other small companies, they're they're panicking and they're fully in like budget preservation mode. And so those companies and understanding who those are and getting to those that information quickly is really critical for our teams. Gotcha. How are you finding today's uh, economic headwinds compared to 2008? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny because that was such a while ago, right? And it's been such such an incredible, incredible bull market since then for SaaS, for software, for technology in general, with what's changed. And I think that, uh, again, we have a way of forgetting those things, but 2008, everything stopped. It stopped and there was layoffs across the board. And you know, I think it's pretty similar. And I just, you know, if my memory served me better, I would have more specific like reminders of what was going on then. But I, you know, I remember that we got through it. And I remember what came at the end of that and how, how well all these companies have done and what's happened since then, right? Since, uh, since that, uh, that downturn because of the financial services uh, breakdown. Yeah, and in stark contrast, uh, you were selling software during the dot-com bubble as well, right? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a really crazy time. It was really fun, really crazy time. Um, the end of the dot-com bubble, before it really burst, um, and selling at Oracle was an incredible thing. Now, you know, you guys have heard of Netscape and. Course. You know what Andreessen did there? Friends had left Oracle to go work at Andreessen with, uh, with, with Andreessen at Netscape. And what they did there was really cool to see them kind of create a similar model to the telesales model that we built within Oracle. This, this long play out of build for many years, for 10 plus years of this team that was selling, you know, in telesales, um, on the phone, multi-million dollar deals across the world, right? And doing things like that. They took this model and they sent it over to Netscape. Netscape did great. Netscape did really well, and um, those people, it put a little kind of bug in the in everyone's ear because everyone wanted to have their own Netscape, 
Right. And so a lot of people left. It was a really interesting time. A lot of people, a lot of my peers left. But then when the, you know, when the shit really hit the fan, everybody got back in line because they were like, oh, Oracle's still selling stuff. Maybe I can get a territory there again, right? So it was kind of like a really strange, you know, and I think something similar is happening right now where obviously, I mean, today as I sit here, I think Meta laid off 11,000 people today globally. So, so everyone's being impacted, even the big companies. But at that time, you know, that was probably the first time Oracle had ever done like mass layoffs. And so it was like, keep your head down, just keep working and grinding. And that's one of the you know, great lessons of sales is if you're, if you're having success, keep going because you don't know what's going to happen if you go over to Netscape or the company that wants to be like Netscape. Yeah, you, you work with the cars that you're dealt uh, in many ways. Exactly. And um, so many people want to look at, the, look at the other person's yard and go, the grass is greener over there. Um, that's one of the greatest pieces of advice ever that I've gotten. It's just like, hey, you got to make hay when the sun is shining. Stupid, stupid, you know, things like that. Yeah. Being a kid of the 60s, you know, you take, you take stuff like that seriously. If you're doing well, if things are going well, work harder and you can make some money, put it in the bank, pay for your kid's school, etc. Yeah, a lot of these things that you hear uh, growing up, they become very profound when we uh, step into the real world in many ways. Yeah, you don't listen when your parents tell you that when you're growing up, right? Just kind of yeah. like what you were saying about your, about your dad. And I mean, yeah, my dad was in sales too, and that's probably part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh, something that's interesting that you mentioned is at the end of each of these recessions and down periods, there's always large bull runs. It can last five years, it can last 10 years, uh, we don't know. Uh, but it's about keeping your head down and sort of selling and building through this time. Uh, you also mentioned that there are certain kinds of companies that are buying today versus others which are just sort of uh, hunkering down. If you are a SaaS company or if you're a sales organization which is selling to those companies that, is doing, that are doing poorly in this market, how do you actually make that sale today? How do you sort of keep the lights on in your own room? So I think, I think the answer to something like that is, can you prove that this is going to help their top line or their bottom line or their risk profile, right? Um, we talk a lot about value selling. We talk a lot about what a great product we sell and how people love to use it. But does a CFO care about that? If their PMs are happy, their product manager, their, their product manager, they're happy. They don't really care if their product manager, they're happy. They want to make sure that they're either raising the top line by building a better product that's gonna be more addressable to the, the customer, or they're reducing risk through saying, hey, we're delivering better stuff for our current customer base, and that's gonna keep them on board as customers. And I think those types of things, the business outcomes that your product drives are really critical in tough times. When it comes down to it, right? If, if your product is not delivering a ton of business value to a customer, is it gonna be one of the things that's on the chopping block first? It probably is, right? Because obviously, if the C-level is evaluating costs and they're looking at uh, different solutions and different SaaS solutions, and some of those aren't rewarding them at the top line, then it's gonna be a real question for them. Absolutely, and as you think about uh, your position in selling large six and seven figure deals in this kind of market and proving value and proving that, hey, uh, we're able to impact top and bottom line. What is the infrastructure you need to set up in terms of people, uh, in terms of um, uh, people like value engineers, uh, in actually communicating that value? What is the process and what is the system that supports this uh, value-based selling look like? <laughs> well, I think what's most critical is you get to you get to understanding the negative consequences, the pain that which is why a customer is talking to you. Um, so a lot of times, within a sales cycle our understanding of the pain that we're trying to address is very critical. 
and whether it's poignant for their management team. So you think about like, if you bring a value and you brought a value engineering, if you bring a value engineer into a cycle, someone to help you prove to the C-level why it makes sense to implement any solution or any, any you know, to fix any problem, then you better be tied to some, some number that makes sense, right? So is a 100K worth of software gonna deliver 100K worth of value? It better deliver more, right? And if so, can you prove that? And can you prove it to the people that matter who are gonna sign that check? Um, the, the processes are, are, you know, obviously they're more complex when the economy is, you know, when the economy is challenging because more people want their eyes and ears on the business. They really want to understand why are we making the decisions we're making, right? Um, my CFO currently, he's going to want to be more involved with every decision that's being made throughout the whole company to understand why we're making those decisions and that they're justified, right, to move the business in the right direction. We're seeing that across the customer more layers of management are involved in everything. More people are asking questions about why they're doing such things and it's happening everywhere. And that's always been the case, is always the case when the economy turns. And it's, it's a lot easier to get, uh, to get money in all cases when the economy's booming. Think about how easy it was to raise for a company two years ago versus how easy it is for a company to raise right now. That's interesting. And as more people get involved in this decision-making, I'd go back to something else we heard as kids, which is too many cooks spoils the broth. Uh, how do you sort of ensure that too many cooks don't spoil your broth if you're sort of selling to a company and there's 20, 30 people involved uh, in the decision making, uh, making up the numbers, of course. How do you make sure that you can still get your point across and navigate that organization? That's, I mean, it's a great point and it's a great question, right? So how do you make sure that you bring a value case that makes sense to them? And so if you have the luxury of having someone on your team who is a value engineer who can really understand the, the, the value of the solution, and articulate it to the various layers of management within the company that you're trying to sell to, then that's gonna be incredibly valuable to you and for you. So can that be described in a, in a small slide deck? Is it something that can be written on a one pager, right? So that the company can then really surface it throughout the organization to say, hey, this is the value that product board or box or Oracle can bring, right? To, to prospect A, B, or C in order to show them that why this solution is gonna make sense. That's amazing. Uh, uh, maybe changing gears a little bit uh, to positioning. Um, you had mentioned, and we've gone to call it stalking, but we've gone over a bunch of stuff you've written uh, from your time at Box and, and sort of uh, uh, the, the battle against uh, Dropbox in a way, where Dropbox possibly had 10x the number of users at some point in time as Box, but Box was able to make the case to the enterprise and position itself for enterprise. Yeah. Uh, and get ahead um, uh, in terms of revenue, if not in terms of uh, user base. So how important is positioning and when should companies start considering it as a means to uh, grow their ACVs and go up market? That's, uh, that's funny that you, you found that. That's, uh, you know, one of my board members currently was a Dropbox person and I'll reflect on that in a minute. But when it, when it comes down to it, um, you know, Box and Dropbox, if a company had 10 Box licenses, we knew it would have 100 plus of Dropbox users. Right. It was 10x. I mean, we, we knew that people were using Dropbox everywhere, um, and we knew that people were using Box. We knew usability for the user was probably in Dropbox's favor, and most people liked that. But organizationally, there were positive trends to the things that we were doing and the way we were building in Box. Right? Uh, I was hired into Box to help build the enterprise team. Like they knew I was coming from 18 years at Oracle and they said, hey, this guy's got an enterprise pedigree and he's, he's an enterprise guy. If we're gonna sell to the Fortune 500, we need someone who understands how Fortune 500 companies buys, right? So they wanted to find me to help grow that team. 
to, to come in and on board to help kind of make the transition from just taking orders online or at the, you know, at the call desk to basically positioning, like, how are we going to sell to the big companies of, of the world? So Box had to pivot a lot and move around a lot, but basically we became the enterprise Dropbox, right? And sometimes companies confused us. The naming thing was really unfortunate. And so often people would be like, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to you guys. And they didn't know they were talking to Box versus Dropbox or vice versa, right? Both of us had guerrilla tactics, Box and Dropbox. And I think Dropbox didn't have as defined a direction in enterprise. It didn't want the enterprise as much and Drew didn't know that he wanted to be in the enterprise as much as Aaron and Box did. So Box really invested heavily in security and compliance and making sure the companies knew what their content was all about. Box was first to market with an administration console, right? Where basically the IT teams and the security teams could understand what kind of content was being traded within their company and with companies outside of their their immediate walls. And that became like a really important differentiator for us. We eventually started marketing it um, as a solution to your Dropbox problem, right? And so my, my Dropbox uh, board member brought that up just recently with me. He said, hey, man, it kind of stunk when you guys brought that up and you created this Dropbox problem because we don't look at ourselves as a problem. We obviously were marketing towards that to say, hey, you don't know what's going on in those 100 users of Dropbox, what content they're trading, who they're trading with. It might be just grandma's pictures. We don't know. And you want to make sure that they're doing real business you know, stuff. So you need an admin console, you need security, you need certification. It, all that sort of compounded into, you know, Box taking very seriously certain industries that were regulated with HIPAA compliance, right, in healthcare, FINRA compliance, in financial services, with government compliance. And those things became great growth areas for Box in enterprise software. It was, it was kind of a cool experience and a lot of fun to be part of that sort of growth trajectory. Yeah, and looking back, I was a Dropbox user through most of my undergraduate education. And the moment I landed in McKinsey, it was all Box. Uh, and that that was that's I guess my way of um, uh, my way of realizing who's cracked enterprise versus not. There's there's a clear enterprise product out there in the market, which yeah. I now realize looking back uh, as a founder. But at that time, I didn't understand it. But it's clear that Box had enterprise use cases because you would never consider something like Dropbox versus uh, Dropbox. Clearly appealed to a, a, an engineering undergraduate student with no money to pay for. It. Yeah, I mean, true. It was true, right? And and I think that. Um, when it came down to it, I was still using both. I mean, I was using yeah. with my friends Dropbox and stuff like that to, <laughs> yeah. to, to exchange videos and trade trade stuff, photos and stuff like that. But it was, it, you know, and I miss using Box a lot, you know, but, you know, obviously Google Drive and OneDrive and things like that have taken over. But yeah, it, it was specific positioning, yeah. a really specific way to address the market and right. go to market. Yeah, and I've heard you talk about this, uh, about how when Box moved up market, it specifically targeted enterprise. Marketing found a lot of success and resonance uh, during trade shows uh, and conferences like Open World, Dreamforce, yeah. and Boxworks. Uh, when it first started out in a hotel room, I think 2011, or like a small hotel. Make software great again. Make software great yeah. again. Yeah. Oh, you guys found a picture of my hat. Yeah, so Aaron. Yeah, we'll, Aaron put up a, we'll put up a picture of the hat on video uh, so that the audience could see. Yeah, so, <laughs> so Aaron um, had a great idea. It was. It was when Trump was elected, right? And so he basically, um, you know, he put he put the, the Trump hat, make America great again, make software great again, on you know on sort of everybody's head. Mm. They came to uh, Boxworks, 
And it was just kind of a funny thing because obviously he was making fun of Trump, but he was also you know using the same branding, right? So it became right. super popular. It's great moment marketing. It was great moment marketing. And, and obviously trade shows, best practices sharing, companies talking to each other, all those things become much more critical mm-hmm. in communities that are using software and understanding how they're getting value out of it as opposed to people that are using a consumer tool. Right, you're going to learn how to use a consumer tool, and you might you might talk about it with me at the beach or yeah. you know you know on a hike or something like that. But it, when it comes down to it, like getting better at embedding box into a business process and understanding how they do that, like within a company that's in healthcare or financial services, was really critical to box's success in those areas. Gotcha. What would be your uh, like a lot of companies uh, who are just starting out with their like trade show appearances and conferences and so on. And we just made our first appearance in Dreamforce. Like we, went, we didn't have a stall or anything, but we were attending the Saster annual that happened a while ago, where we had a booth and so on. What would be your advice or like recommendations or like must not do's for companies who are just starting out? At yeah, and when do you? And maybe just to tag on to that question, when does a company start sort of considering uh, investing in events? Uh, how early or late in their journey yeah. would that be? You know, it's really funny because obviously everything changed three years ago when the virus hit, right? And it became something that wasn't as critical. These virtual events were, were really critical and became something that, you know, with, with companies like Hopin that just took off. Yeah. And so the world changed there. And, you know, I always question, always question the, the sort of the value of sending a whole bunch of people to Dreamforce or, or Whole World or to Boxworks or Saster or anything else. But when it comes down to it, I think that stuff is alive and well again, and people are really enjoying the fact that they can see each other in person and get value out of that because a lot of the conversations that happen at our office weren't happening when we were all sitting in the basement taking calls on Zoom. And the same goes you know, for every company that wants to collaborate around how to be more successful with any solution you're using. And I think that those people need that. Um, I've been, we've been doing a world tour at Pogport. The world tour is let's go to different cities, Let's try to get 40, 50 people in a room. And it's working because people are so excited to share best practices around how they're using our tools to make themselves better, right? And they're really enjoying the fact that they can get to meet peers in person again in a roundtable environment where speakers are sort of leading the talk. And it's not just us telling you you how great the product is, but it's our customers telling other customers what's working and what's not. And I think that that stuff is... It's, it's, it's really becoming valuable again for the customer base. So, I mean, when do you do it? I think you do it when, when you raise a B or C round and you can afford it, right? And then you get a big enough customer base where you can get customers involved and people who are references um, engaged to create a user group that drives the engagement. Like when user groups first started in my days at Oracle, eventually user groups, they took the agenda. We didn't have to take the agenda anymore. We just paid for drinks. Right. So now the user group was saying, hey, we need to figure out how to use Oracle Financials better. These are the topics we want to discuss. Oracle, you're buying dinner, you're getting the room, you're paying for drinks, but we're going to take the content. Right. And that, I think, was really valuable. And it's become valuable again to people as the world has opened up. Yeah, especially as the world has opened up. I think people are looking for those human experiences, especially when it comes to sale. Um, We've noticed across companies, and it'd be great to get your insight as well, which is, uh, we're noticing that people just calling up and, and picking up a line and giving a call to a sales prospect leads to a 2 or 3x increase in the kind of reply rates they get versus sending a cold email, uh, which doesn't look to a human. It could have been generated by um, any kind of sort of AI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
versus someone picking up the call and you know it's a human at the other end talking to you and, and responding to you in real time. And, and then taking that further into events where you can meet someone in the flesh, um, it just makes for a more personal experience. Are you seeing something similar at Product Board as well? Uh, which is that more human experiences are leading to better win rates. Uh, it's sales making a return. Yeah, so, you know, the team did a lot of work as I was coming on board and before I even got there about like, if we put sales against an opportunity, is it going to convert better? Because self-serve was working just fine. But self-serve was working just fine for onesie, twosie, smaller groups to self-select in and out. And when you put sales against it and you allowed some level of discovery, against the pains that the customer was encountering. Why is the product management team having problems and getting to where they need to get? What are the things that they need to address? Well, then the, the sales team could try to address those better. And when you had that opportunity, then you could actually get more focused on the problem instead of them self-sourcing or self-diagnosing their problem and trying to fix it with software. We sell a fairly complex tool. It's, it's not simple. This is not Dropbox, right? I mean, this is there's got a lot, a lot of workflow embedded, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different pieces and parts of the software and boards within the software that make it valuable. And if, if you pick it up, you know, obviously there's things you can get value out of it pretty quickly, but making sure you set up the hierarchy properly and do all the things properly with it, uh, sales can really help with that. And you know, there's different resources and services, there's different resources in sales engineering and value engineering we talked, discussed, that can really help the customer elevate their use and the output of the product so that they're getting more value from it. So I think over time, learning that sales could help customers that had you know chosen product board via the fact that it looked great and was easy to use, I think it helped them grow within product board, right? And it's helped us as the customer network has expanded. Like the you know people leave and they go to a different place. Now they're you know now they're buying product board for bigger groups and bigger teams and they're. In, employing services at the beginning to make sure that they're successful with it immediately and they're, they're deploying it the right way. And that's pretty rewarding to see that customers do that and in sort of being successful with it. That's interesting. And um, you mentioned that product board is a complex piece of software. Uh, most softwares in the world that generate the most enterprise value are complex, right? So it takes an effort to set them up the right way. Um, and also not setting it up the right way leads to churn and retention problems and so on. Uh, what does the process look like around um, the post-sale process, right? So you've, you've sold product board or any piece of software that looks similar, and now it's about onboarding that user, getting them to value as fast as possible, and you can have sales, customer success, etc. Uh, in that motion. Uh, what what does setting up that motion look like? How iterative it, uh, is it, and how long does it take to get it right? It depends on the depth of the, how, how far they're going, how big the team is, how big the company is, how many users they've got. And, and those types of things. But when it comes down to it, I mean, onboarding can start as soon as the, the day that they, that they acquire. But a lot of times customers, they're going through a sales process with us, which is the beginning of their basically proof of concept, which is the beginning of their deployment to success and go live. So it's all kind of iterative. Um, when it comes down to it, most customers are purchasing services packages now that they basically are using to get deeper into education as they go live with a product, right? So um, when they start onboarding, they have services people who are experts with the product and, and have some level of product management expertise that can really help them deploy processes that make sense and implement the product the way it's gonna be most successful within the organization. 
We are also qualifying customers where we say you're not ready for us because your level of maturity and product is not there and vice versa, right? Where it's like, hey, you guys already have a really, a really buttoned down process. You may be, you know, you maybe understand what you're doing in the tools that you're working with now, as opposed to like, hey, we can really help you. And we know that we can help you because you're not seeing that you're doing this in a repeatable way that makes sense for your organization over time. But it's generally through onboarding with services and then handed it off from services to CS. A lot of times services will stay engaged um, on an annual basis or for more like more care and feeding over time as new PMs come on board or onboarded within the system. Makes a ton of sense. Gotcha. Uh, I want to switch gears and sure. just get, go back to the art of sales and selling and your passion for sales. Just curious if you had thoughts about what are the key, key ingredients of a really persuasive sales pitch? Like, I'm sure you've had your share of sales conversations directly where yeah. you're trying to position the product and like really make drive that point home. Yeah. But what are those key notes that you make sure you hit in that sales yeah. conversation? Why should someone buy a, a $3,000 uh, yard excursion today versus three months from now? It probably doesn't cost that much anymore, right? <laughs> I, I mean, when you ask like persuasive sales person or persuasive sales um, pitch, I get a little leery. It makes me makes me think of the mob or something like that you know like am i persuading you with a with a stiff uh, a, a stiff right to your jaw and i think i mean i think persuasion is one part but i think it goes into the work that you're putting into the front end to really understand the customer's problems right to address the fact that you really are getting to the pains that that customer is trying to acknowledge no matter what you're selling right um the families that i was selling to to use your analogy those families were like, I gotta get this kid out of my hair because I can't have that kid here, here all summer. So that we were dealing with a parent who had to say, look, I gotta break up the summer for this kid and I can't, I'd like to do something somewhat productive so that they learn a life skill. So let me tell you about why you're gonna learn a life skill, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and let me show you why this is good for your son or daughter. And that idea that you can do that to um, anyone who's making the decision across any decisioning bo deciding body, I think is really critical. I don't think, that you can sell a pencil or a car to someone who doesn't need a pencil or a car, right? I could go around this facility and say, hey, who needs to buy a pencil right now? There probably is one person that might be needing a pencil, but when it comes down to it, um, they have to have that pain. They have to be needing to write right now, and then they have to know that they need to write soon, something like that, so that it's, it's a compelling thing. I think persuasion and sales, when it comes to enterprise sales, I think it's really hard because you want, you want to be persuasive but you have to use that with the right tactics around understanding the pain, the business outcomes that the customer is trying to drive or the value that they're trying to get to, and the fact that it's tied to a metric that's measurable for a CFO or whoever an economic signer. Gotcha. And uh, when, you, when you hire for uh, account executives who will work on your team, uh, beyond, the, beyond a nose for the Spain, or like, like you said, the ability to put in that work up front to kind of determine if this potential seller or potential buyer has that pain. Right. Beyond that, are there any other traits you look for uh, when you hire someone to be a part of your team? Yeah, and we talked about this a minute ago, the, the idea that we're not selling a simple productivity tool um, where every demo is the same. Um, it's, rinse and, it's rinse and repeat, and I'm gonna show you the same thing every time I get on the phone with whoever it is, right? If you're selling, if you're selling the same thing every time, um, the pencil analogy. It's very different for every person, but. The idea to me is how do you figure out who are going to be the right people to sell is really dependent around um, have they done this before? Have they sold complex software? 
to large companies where there's multiple stakeholders, have they proven success in that? Like, have they been able to say, hey, look, I've done this repeatedly, quarter over quarter, year over year, whatever it might be, to show you that I can understand that selling complex software to a large Fortune 500 company, what it entails, how I was involved, how I use my resources properly, and how I got to success. If they can prove that to me or to the management team, then I think that they have a good shot at um, you know, the next interview and becoming one of our AEs. And, and what have you seen separate sort of the absolute top 1 percentile cream uh, or 99 percentile cream of AEs versus everyone else? Like what separates the best from the rest when it comes to selling like a seven-figure deal? Yeah, it, it's curiosity, it's drive, it's hunger, and it's, it's like a winning attitude that they, they want to win and, and they want to do well. Um, curiosity for the success of the customer and themselves. Um, curiosity, the negative side, like what could possibly go wrong here? How might, what I might, what might I be missing or mis-executing on? Like it's, it's these people that wake up in the middle of the night with their eyes looking at the ceiling going, oh my God, did I think of this one thing as I'm coming up upon closure of my six figure deal? Those people uh, who have that drive and want to win, like they think of things that the whole deal team don't think of. You, know, you might have six people involved from the company that are working on a you know a big pursuit, a, a six-figure deal. And they're the people that are leading the charge going, hey, what are we missing, gang? What is it that we're missing? Who possibly could throw a wrench in this thing? Who could screw it up for us? And those are the, those are the people that I think rise to the top. Um, there was this control freak, this absolute control freak at Oracle. She had a direct line to Larry Ellison. She was a seller at Oracle, and she was fantastic. She wouldn't let anybody touch her opportunities because she knew that any one person could throw a wrench in it, right? From Oracle. So she would just control it all. And she knew like every piece of the puzzle and how to make sure that a, you know, a large you know, eight, 10 figure deal was gonna get done, right? Within these large companies. And she was so good at executing. And she was always on top of it, was, was very smart, was always on top of these things. So all those things come to mind for me and I've seen it at all the stops I've made like with different people who do the same thing, but they all think the same way. How am I going to be most successful and make my customer the most successful? How am I going to get the, the whole team there and on board with it? You say, and when was the last time, out of curiosity, when was the last time uh, you were interviewing an AE or anyone into like a sales management position and they just blew you out of the water? So without taking names, when was the last time you were like, oh wow, like let me take a step back here, sit back, have a little bit of water? Yeah, it would have been like two, two years, two years and a quarter ago. Somebody that I hired at the at Prop Board, who I just was like, wow, okay, this person gets it. And the way that that person has ramped has just been phenomenal. Um, so it's really, it's hard to qualify because I mean, in sales, we all make a lot of bad hires. It's known across the industry, right? But it's and especially when you're hiring at velocity, when you're doing a lot of hiring, and you're hiring up and down the organization for people in different segments that are calling on different parts of the business, but. Um, when you hit one and it works, it's really rewarding. And what does it feel like to close on eight to ten figure deal? What does five minutes feel like? Uh, it feels great. I mean, it's been it's been a good long time for me. Um, as we've grown Product Board, you know, into what it is now, we haven't we haven't done those sort of deals. But um, in the days at Oracle, when you had a bunch of people working on stuff together, and even the days at Box, right, when we did the first um, ten figure deal or eight figure deal, eight figure deal, when we did the first eight figure deal, that was just so it was so great for the company. It was so great for, you know, and to see that we locked it in for a number of years and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it happens all the time at, you know, the big companies. Um, 
I've got friends that are working now at Google Cloud and Amazon and stuff like that that are doing it all the time. I'm, I'm missing that, but I'm also enjoying kind of the teaching aspect of what I do now. Yeah, that's that's insane that you can close an eight and nine figure deal. Those are public market companies on their own. Uh, a company, a SaaS company, goes into public markets at 200, 300 million ARR, and this deal itself is probably a public yeah. market company. So it's insane that these deals are possible uh, yeah. in the world out there. And I think everybody sort of at Box and, and getting into Box, and they always ask me that, all the people there, they're like, oh, what's it like to work on that deal at Symantec or what you were doing at Cisco or how you sold to HP or whatever it is. And we would always talk about those things because there's examples and things you learned along the way from the, all those things that you can bring to bear as you're selling to large companies, even a smaller deal, hmm. right, would help you. And uh, the way software is sold has changed uh, quite a bit in the last 30 years, right? Uh, the way you would sell product board if it existed like 30 years ago would probably have been different uh, from the way you would sell it now. Oh, yeah. Uh, what are those like fundamental differences you've seen decade over decade over the last three years? Like, and product-led growth is a quite recent phenomenon. Um, and what do you think is the next way of that? Like, yeah, and how, how do you sell product board if you don't have a Zoom screen share? Uh, you can't see the individual on the screen in front of you. How do you, how do, you do it over a five-minute uh, five phone call? Yeah, I mean, it's it is crazy. Uh, the days of starting at Oracle in the early '90s and like talking to people on the phone and then sending them a data sheet in the mail in the U.S. mail and then calling them up on the phone to say, "Hey, did you get my data sheet? Did that make sense? Did it answer your questions? How can I help you? Would you like to buy a database today?" That sort of stuff, right? Um, it's changed so much, and having access to to people who want to kind of converse via video is really helpful. So you can get a read on how their level of engagement, you know, kind of over time, how engaged are they? How interested in that are they? Are they who, what's their title? Who are they in the organization? Do they feel the pain that we're trying to address? Do they understand those types of things? All that stuff comes into play. Um, when we were selling ERP in the early days at Oracle, obviously we didn't give anyone software. They didn't get to try anything. We wouldn't let them put their hands on it. We would just do demos. We do lots of demos. And then we try to get them to see their business in the software. And we do the same thing in a POC, a proof of concept, like in a deep dive demo at product board, something like that, where it's like, let us use your data. Let us set up your hierarchy. Let us bring your business to life within the structure of our software and our workflow so that you can see how we can help you. And that's a really critical piece. So deciding sort of which sales playbook to run with. Customers can buy the software online. Everybody can be PLG and self-serve now, but a lot of times they're not getting a firm understanding for how it's going to work for them unless we help them because of the complexity of it. And I think that really helps us kind of get to the place where we can deliver value. That's interesting. That's something most sort of early stage teams here, which is you know that your software can solve a lot of solutions. And when you go to the buyer and they're like, hey, my case is different. My company is unique. I need this, I need that. And what it actually is, is people are not seeing their company um, in that piece of software, where product-led growth can get you to the software, but for you to see a reflection of your own company in that software is where a human touch is required, as you mentioned. Uh, in yeah. Terms of yeah, and I think we as a group, we would send people to market because they knew how to demo our software well. So I'd have sales guys that would kind of graduate past the demo. You did a great demo, go try to sell the stuff. We didn't teach them as well how to discover business value. We didn't teach him as well how to understand the problems that a customer was facing. We didn't t teach him as well how to talk a PM's language. And we're trying to do better in all those things in kind of an underserved market as it is, right? Because as you know, 
product management software hasn't been around for a long time, right? Um, so we're trying to get people to a place where they can do decent discovery on this so that I understand that that product manager and what their pains are and what they're trying to build, what, where they want to take that thing to market and how they're going to use it. So really understanding the sales playbook, how we're going to prove like what their decision process looks like, what the decision criteria is, those things and getting alignment around that, that's a really critical piece fundamentally for our team to get good at. If they qualify that incorrectly, um, they could waste a lot of time and resource in talking to the wrong people or in selling the wrong way. It's very interesting. Uh, and that, so yeah, going back to Rahul's question, software sales has changed a lot. And there's two parts of the sale. There's the seller and the buyer. So selling has of, of course changed a lot over a period of time. How have you seen the buyer change uh, from sort of uh, the mid 90s to uh, what we have today, which is a recession Buyers are uh, sort of very picky about the software they buy. Yeah. There are sort of budget freezes. So how has the buyer changed over the last uh, 20 plus years? Yeah, the, the buyer is so much more educated than they used to be, right? Think about the buyer that called me in 1993 or 94 when I was sitting at a desk in Oracle. They would see an ad in a, public, in a publication and they would say, oh, Oracle, I've heard of that. I should call in this 800 number and get a data sheet. That was how they learned more about it. <clears throat> Now you can get my whole software down, you can access it online. You could be using it in 15 minutes without a credit card. And you can be educated enough to go find forums and to go learn from our community site what are the, what are the challenges of other people, how they look at the problems. In many cases, they're better educated than our sales team is, which is why our sales team needs to continue to up-level and discovery and get better at understanding the problems of the customer and each individual customer who has different problems. But the idea here is that um, over time, as information has become more pervasive, as software has become more available, as the world has changed, so too has the buyer. And the buyer is so much more empowered than they used to be. They know a whole lot more than they used to. And because of that, um, the ability of the sales team to deliver value has become even more important. And they can sniff through it. Hence your, your persuasion question. You know, they can't just crack them across the jaw and say, see my value. They have to really understand the problems. And given that there's so much information out there and buyers are hyper-educated to some sense, uh, does that change the ballgame in terms of having that first call where buyers are coming in with a preconceived notion, they might already have an answer in their head, and now sales has to either work with that or work against it uh, to change their point of view. Has that changed how the buyer approaches the meeting? Um, and if they come in with preconceived notions, how do you sort of tackle that? Yeah, I think they do all the time. And I think we, um, I call it column fodder. A lot of times companies will have one company as a sourced solution that they want to use. And then they'll come to us and say, hey, we have to use product board to bounce it off a of product board to say, we looked at other solutions and this is not the right one, but this is why. Uh, and you have to understand how to get to that. But there, there's a lot of people out there with preconceived notions about a solution and, uh, and what will work or won't work. And our job is to, as salespeople, is to uncover that and make sure again that um, if we're sort of, if we're, if we're in a battle that we can't win, that we're walking away from that battle to go fight another day, um, to qualify that we're not in a place where we can win. We had written about product board a year ago. That's sort of our, the first time we started talking was around what we wrote about product board. Yeah, you guys found a lot of good stuff, didn't you? You found a lot of data out there. Yeah, and one thing we noticed was product board was starting to move up market. That's sort of when you came on board because you, you've specialized in like how to navigate those enterprise environments. Uh, uh, 
and Toriput has moved up market and you've announced your new round of funding earlier this year. Uh, curious where product, what is the next step of evolution in product sports journey and what will the product look like five years from now? What will that GTM machine look like five years from now? Hmm. Uh, good questions, all of them. Um, so I think most of the people that found product board and found product board through PLG and through the trials and things like that were in smaller companies. They were PMs that had easy access to get stuff like that, to try these things. And um, that was apparent that a lot of the self-service business was coming from that market, the commercial market, right? But as bigger and bigger customers started to try to find us, and these were mostly PMs or directors of PM, PM managers, things like that, they, they, would, they would take a look at us and try us. And then sometimes trials would get extended and continually get extended because they were seeing value, but they weren't sure how they were gonna prove the value to the organization that would allow them to say, hey, it makes sense to, to, to buy something like this. And so the reason I was brought on and one of the, one of the big impetuses to get me on board was, can we have someone help us try to decipher what's going on here? The company saw these signals coming where big companies, big companies, Fortune 100 companies were really using us in, in a non-licensed way with trials that were being extended by reps who didn't know how to say no, who didn't know how to say, wait a second, let's put together a plan by which you can use our stuff but you need to make sure that, you know, we both have a license. You're protected via a license agreement and that we're both protected via that agreement to have you be, be using our stuff. So when I got plugged in, I helped with mostly the Altmark team. I helped them sort of figure out which ones were real, which, which ones weren't. And then we moved all those forward, right? And the ones that made sense. And we got some, we got some pretty big deals done. It was, it was a, a really good turning point for the company and proof point for the company to say, hey, if you purposely like our directive about the reasons why they're looking at the software and how they're going to reach decision consensus within the company that it makes sense to engage in those. And so, you know, that's where, that's where it went. Um, you know, we did some pipe pricing and packaging changes. Um, we kind of approached the market in a different way to say, Hey, the value is not just in the product manager who uses it. It's the output of product board. Product board tells you how to make, make products that are better for your customer with a customer signal because it's such a, a strong customer centric system. And so we really took that into account when we said, hey, you've got to think about this if you're a company that's building digital experiences. If you're building digital experiences, you should think about, you know, the output of product board is the real value of product board. It's just not just in the users that it empowers or enables. And that became like one of my mantras and, and you know, cries with it internally to say, let's get people talking about that as opposed to just the features for the PM. A product manager built product board, Hubert Palin, right? He built it and he built it for himself and he knows what he wants for product managers. But our job is to really take that product and say, hey, the reason that it's valuable to a large organization is because of the signal that it's giving you from the consolidation of the customer message, right? And I think that, be, that becomes pretty important. So to say that again, without a hiccup, it's the signal that we're getting from the customer, consolidating that message and making sure that that is the product that comes out of product board, right? That's the output of product board, which is much more valuable than just empowering the, the PM, the product manager. Gotcha. That's a very sweet digital version of that one. Uh, it's something that every product manager will relate to, every organization can relate to. This is the one outcome which you can achieve. That is a grand vision. So, yeah. Right? That's, that's kind of, and that's what we talk about internally to say, hey, is product board a productivity tool for product manager? It is, but it's also so much bigger than that because it's a customer centric, you know, product platform 
right, for product managers. And it really, it's giving you the customer centricity that you need to make sure that you're taking the customer signal and building towards success with it. So in the case of product board and the way that we were selling, we were very feature and function focused. We were very demo focused. We were very trial focused. If you see something you like, stop me and I'll show it to you a little bit deeper instead of really getting to the, the, the sort of top-down value selling of what the real negative consequences were of not doing the right things within the business. What's it going to cost me with churn? What's it going to cost me because I'm not able to sign up additional customers if I don't build in the right direction? And it goes across different industries too. Like it, it leans in with P, you know, B2C, like companies that are building, building products, not just for big companies, but are building products for gamers or things like that in a B2C space. And so, you know, all of those things come into play um, for us. We have to, as a company, continue to build to make sure that we're widening the aperture and we're not just a company that's focused on B2B SaaS, but we're a customer-centric product platform for all kinds of products, right? For internally built product applications for a financial institution or a healthcare institution, or basically an app that is basically one of the biggest B2B SaaS platforms that is Salesforce. That, that's an amazing vision and what looks to be the foundations of an enduring company, uh, if I could ever sort of articulate it myself. Uh, so that, that's amazing. In a world which is increasingly a world where every company is a technology company, every company has to be a consumer and uh, centric product company as well. And that's essentially what you're trying to build for. Uh, yeah, so. digital experiences are above all. I mean, uh, my dad's 87, right? Digital experiences are not as important to him. But to everyone else, to everyone in the world right now, everyone that's grown up with a device, and that is basically embracing technology, you know, to do every part of their of their experience in their life. They have to have a better digital experience, and that's what's that's one of the foundations and the things that I'm so excited about about Product Board, you know, because we can bring that dream to, to, for every product manager, and we can also help empower them with the methodology, product excellence methodology. Because as you and I both know, it's not just about putting in software. You have to change the way you do your job, and in order to make the software effective. Right. If you do it the right way, if you employ the methodology with the, the software, then you're going to be most successful. Amazing. Gotcha. Great. Then I think we can wind down uh, the podcast with a few questions uh, here. This section is where uh, feel free to rant or feel free to give us your one second reaction without thought. Your primal first reaction yeah. to it. <laughs> uh -oh. We just uh, bounce like four questions off you. Uh, just short answer or like long rant, whatever you wish. Uh, but these are questions that I like, usually have like one word answer or so. But if you want to elaborate further, feel free as well. Uh, yeah, we're curious. That, uh, we've heard that Product Board is like a quite tech-heavy organization. So is there a tool that you've discovered in the last year which has been like a game changer for you uh, or has uh, improved your life in some way? Uh, tools that we use from external vendors? Yeah, could be anything. Uh, even in your personal stack or your phone, any tool that you've discovered in the last year that's been game changer that you would recommend that others check out as well yeah i mean i think i think for us you know for me coming from my background and the things that we're doing um clary is is most impactful for us in the bb space i'm trying to manage the, the pipeline and, and how we look at business and sales mm -hmm. um you know i think we've got a fairly standard market, marketing product and sales stack like in product mm -hmm. um but there's and there's a lot of different data tools that we're using to try to get to uh to get to the right data around the customer base and what, what a profile looks like for a prospect. Uh, but none of those have blown our minds, unfortunately. Gotcha. Uh, what is one tool that you wish existed 
if you if you can point point your fingers to a gaping hole that exists in your test stack today for a solution uh, for a problem that you have identified in your day to day life, what is one tool that you wish existed that could solve that? Yeah, so so we're trying to get to a place, and I think we're doing a pretty good job of it as a company, and you're trying to get to a place where we're quantifying for our customer base, um, basically the investment time and how long it takes to build a product, and coexist with Jira to be able to define like what that means. The reporting becomes very complex. The, on their on their side of Jira, they're an execution system, right, for basically building features. On our side, we're a product management system for doing discovery around features and then prioritizing and then putting them in a roadmap. And so to bring those things together so that there's a reporting process by which a customer can understand how how is the value coming to life or not coming to life so we know that we're efficient and we're investing in the right places. That's one thing that I think we are trying to solve as a company that, um, that we're getting pretty close to, which I think will be really will resonate well. We love talking to that about pro- with our prospects and our bigger our bigger prospects in particular. They love partnering with us on that. Gotcha. And uh, I couldn't find you on Twitter, but if I, are you on Twitter? Do you use Twitter actively? No, that too. I am I'm probably the oldest guy you've ever interviewed. Uh, I bet as far as uh, sales goes, but um, I I don't have a heavy social footprint, and and I think I attribute it to my uh, mid sixties upbringing. <laughs> So, so you're not going to be paying eight dollars a month for Twitter. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to be paying eight dollars a month for Twitter. There's, there's definitely that is true. I do have a Twitter account. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I'm not active on it. Like I, I socially and LinkedIn um, through business, and then sometimes with uh, with my family, mostly through like Instagram and uh, Facebook and stuff. Gotcha. Is there a sales community or any community that you're a part of uh, in SF that that you enjoy? Uh, yeah, there's meeting out with. Yeah. So there's a, there's a group, and it's mostly like grassroots, and we we created it uh, through like the, the days at Oracle Inbox that I keep in touch with, where there's folks that I've got to dinner with on a quarterly basis, and we'll talk about best practices and ideas and things like that. It's not an official um, social uh, team because again, my my social footprint is pretty minimal. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because when you pinged me to do this thing, I was going, okay, how did these guys even know who I am? You know, I keep my head down and I sort of do my job, right? I don't, I'm not, I'm not very good about like all the things that most people do, are doing right now online and becoming social and making sure that their presence is and people are aware of who they are and what they're doing. Um, and it's something I've got to get better, better at for sure. We know product board, we love the product. We, we know Product Board is doing well, and that's how you find you. There's always people behind sort of outside. Well, you said that, right? You said, who are the people of, of, of companies like this? And I, and I appreciated the, the chance. I mean, I've talked to a couple of uh, different folks on, on things like this, but um, I keep my head down when it comes mostly to, like, you know, a, a strong opinion about stuff. I'm obviously not creating a lot of content on my own, which is, I think, a good way to get more recognized and something that, like I said, I need to get better at. Yeah, it's amazing. I think you joke that you are the oldest person on the podcast, but I think you're also the most relevant person to talk to, especially at this time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And like you, like you said, that you're seeing uh, 2008 play over again. Uh, yeah. For us. Yeah. And also, uh, there are a lot of companies, including ourselves, are trying to crack like what enterprise selling can look like, uh, and that's a very different ball game from what a mid-market selling machine can look like. Right. And that's not something that. Uh, Everybody has figured out that takes more method and dedicated hard work. It's done hard work. That's at least what I could glean from our conversation. 
than like hacks or like tips around selling and so on. Like that's the feeling I get from talking to you that there is no, there are no shortcuts here. There is no the art of persuasion. It does take a lot of effort and work being put into it. And you have to put in the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so we, we sort of trade people on a methodology at Product Board and it was the first time we gave them sales training. And half the team came to me and said, I love it. And the other half team came to me and said, I'm scared of it. Because it wasn't what they were taught previously. It wasn't what they knew to do or how to do it. And some people filtered out and left the organization because they were afraid to embrace like this new methodology. And we're still in the process of getting it adopted and making sure that people understand the value of it. Hmm. Right. But when you think about like, you know, teaching people to sell a different way through proper discovery, understanding pain points, getting into business, um, business outcomes and talking about things that way, uh, I think it changed the team a lot. And I think it's something that we recognized. I recognized like as I started there was, wow, okay, we're selling the same way to the same, we're selling the same way every time to different people that have different needs. And that's one thing that, you know, I've said multiple times in this discussion is understanding why a person is taking your call is more important than hitting them across the head with the same message that you just delivered to the last person. Right. And I think that that process has helped this team kind of grow to get to a place where, you know, we're moving up market, we're selling long, longer term deals, we're selling more value, we're understanding and getting access to people that we never had access to before. Yeah. And those are things I'm pretty psyched about. I'm proud for my team and proud for the work that we've done. Uh, one last question. Uh, can, how can our audience help you? Uh, or uh, uh, if they want to help you, how, how, where can they get to you? Uh, what would you, what would be your one ask? Yeah, so, I mean, I love doing stuff like this to help. Um, you know, people can get to me via my email at darcy.doyle at product board. And I mean, I think the thing that we'd ask is you product managers out there, the people that are really interested in what we're doing, um, we're helping, you know, change the world one customer at a time. We're at about 6,500 customers now. We're making a huge impact on the way that people build products. And I want them to make sure that they take a look. You know, and obviously we have a lot of different ways you can look at us through both the PLG engine and through talking to our team. So come have a look at what we've got and see if it's if it's something that can help you uh, in your transformation to uh, digital experiences. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah.